Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and uh, I'm the lead pastor. I want to welcome you this morning and wish you a very warm, happy Father's Day. Um, dads, congrats on being dads, right? Some of you are new dads this year. Uh, very exciting. We celebrate with you. Um, some of you are old dads, um, like me. Uh, you had kids a long time ago, but they just keep being kids, and uh, we get to keep celebrating you and them. That's awesome. Some of you are New grandparents, like this guy, uh, happy Father's Day again, a lot to celebrate. Um, anyway, I kind of was thinking this week, this was one of those weeks, man, where uh, I just, you, I don't think you ever outgrow like this need for dad, you know what I'm saying? Like to just, you know, even if you don't have a dad, even if, well, you had one, but it's not present, if he's passed away, or if he went away, or um, you just, you, there are times you just want to sit down with somebody who knows you, has been there and done that, has wisdom you don't have. We crave a dad. We crave somebody who will speak life into us and give us wisdom and love us where we are. And, um, and so, you know, I want to pause and celebrate. Um, dad's your you're doing a very hard job, um, and uh, you don't get often the applause you deserve. Um, and here's the reality. Even the best dad's a broken dad, right? There's this glorious ruin of this creation. There's the glory of being created in the image of God, and there's the ruin of, of our own sinfulness and brokenness that we bring into it, which means that the best, best dad is still going to fail in ways, and, and the worst dad still did something right, right? You're, you're here. That's good right? Did something right. Um, and so I, I just want to pause and kind of enter into that tension and, and celebrate um, and, and kind of celebrate the dads that are in and out in the trenches laying down their lives, um, trying their best, knowing they're failing at times or maybe a lot of times, um, but trusting that ultimately God is going to work through their effort um, and to celebrate and to honor those of you who, you know, you didn't have a dad for whatever reason, um, to mourn with you. You were designed uh, to need that, and there's no shame in not having it, even though it awakens within you feelings, vulnerability, and, and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, so it's a mess, and it's good. It's beautiful, and it hurts like most of life, right? So happy Father's Day, and, um, and let's keep fighting, right? those of us who are dads to be the best dads we can be, those of us who have dads to honor them in ways that, that are good and healthy, good for them and good for us. Even if your dad was broken, even if your dad, um, you know, reflected the ruin more than the glory, um, it is good for your soul to, to honor um, what can be honored, right? So let's, let's do that and, um, uh, and let's fight for the glory, right? Let me pray um, as we reflect. Father, we thank you uh, for our dads. We thank you um, for uh, guys that are just stumbling forward, trying to figure out how to do this thing. Um, give them encouragement and give them strength. Help them to be a blessing to their families, um, a source of strength and a source of joy. Um, Lord, I pray for those that are mourning today uh, because of a loss of a, of a dearly loved dad or, or maybe just the loss of the 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 need of a dad that was never there. Um, Lord, I thank you that in all of this, you are the good dad, um, the true heavenly father. You're the one that leads sacrificially, that knows us thoroughly, that lays down your life for our good, that continually gives us wisdom and calls us to our best selves. Um, man, what a privilege um, to be adopted back into the family of God through the work of Christ. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts today that uh, we would celebrate what can be celebrated and mourn what needs to be mourned and to do it in a healthy way, all in your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, we're going over to James chapter five this morning. James chapter five, so grab your Bibles and, and flip over to James five. Um, today's passage is, is a bit of a howler. If, uh, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Ron Weasley's mother is gonna be screaming at us from the pages this morning, not really, but. But this, this is a passage that yells, um, and for good reason, as we will see. So you've heard the phrase, Midas touch, 
right? We, we talk of somebody having a Midas touch, and it's generally a compliment. What it means is everything they do prospers, right? They have this ability to move into any situation and, and create profit or to create prosperity or to turn it around for something good. If somebody has a Midas touch, they can just make anything into a money-making venture or a success, right? We even have companies named after this, right? There's Midas Touch Realty over in St. Louis. There's, there's Midas Car Muffler. There's, right, we, we, we aspire to this, right, to have this ability to turn things uh, good, right? When we think of somebody with the Midas Touch, it makes us think of somebody who's lucky and smart and shrewd and successful. And this is incredibly ironic because um, here's the thing. It, 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 I think it highlights a deceptive relationship we have with money, um, Midas. So when we think about actual Midas, Midas, the, the guy is a figure from Greek mythology. He was a king of, of Phrygia, um, and, and he had this weird encounter with a satyr, which is a half goat, half man. Um, the satyr had been at a, uh, a worship event for Dionysius, which is not like our worship events. Um, Dionysius was the god of wine and revelry, and so this satyr had been like partying um, for days and was completely knackered and uh, fell asleep in Midas's rose garden. Midas found him and was like, look, a, a satyr, and he is a worshiper of Dionysius, so we will honor the satyr as a way to honor Dionysius. Dionysius notices this and shows up one day to Midas and is like, hey man, I'm honored that you honored me, so whatever you wish, right? You have one wish, whatever you want. And Midas is like, man, you know what? I just wish anything I touch would turn to gold. And Dionysius is like, well, that's a strange request, but all right, you got it. He's like, really? Are you serious? So he, he touches a plate, turns to gold, touches an apple, turns to gold. And he's like, are you kidding me? We're going to be the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth. All of our problems are solved. We are, I'm going to be the greatest, most glorious king. We are going to be the greatest dynasty and kingdom the world has ever seen. We are going to have an unlimited supply of wealth and resources. And as he is celebrating and jubilant and excited, his daughter runs and jumps into his arms. And he turns her into a beautiful gold dead statue so you can see the irony that we would think of somebody having the Midas touch as this incredible thing this compliment right because this is ancient Greek literature and it's communicating the same concept that we all know to be true and that is um, that uh, money makes deceptive promises right money money writes checks that it can't cover um, checks for security and, and true lasting rest and, and genuine significance and respect and, 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 and we look to money to do these things and it simply can't deliver. Um, and the reality is that a love for money will actually kill the things. A love for the value of money will kill the things that are most valuable in our lives. In our love for money, we will actually destroy the things that are genuinely valuable. That's the whole point of the story of Midas right? He, he gets what he wants and destroys what he loves as a result. You know, Jesus highlighted this. Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he said, he's like, hey, y'all, you can't serve two masters. You can't do it. You'll love the one and hate the other, or, or you will hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't. Those are two opposing worldviews. Those are two opposing ways of doing life. That is, that, is, that is the essence of what James calls a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. You cannot live uh, by both value systems, right? Paul warns us that the love of money is the root of every kind of evil. That the love of money is the root of every kind of evil. Every kind of evil flows when we foster a love for money. With these kinds of sobering warnings, you think we would be more careful in our attitude toward money. This should be sobering, but we're not sober. We're not sober. We are a culture that loves money. We are a culture that celebrates wealth and riches. We love money. We love people with money. We just do, right? We, we love um, we, people can be famous in America for no other reason than because they got a big checking account. That's it, right? They got a lot of money, they're famous. You know what fame is, right? Fame, very simply, is worship. We worship people with money because we worship the money they have. We, we have even turned King Midas into a hero to be admired. That's ironic. And it's devastating in its effects.
James, in his passage today, has a goal to sober us up, to call us to reality. All right, so let's take a look at our passage. That kind of sets the stage. Uh, We're looking at James chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 out loud. You can follow along. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, happy Father's Day. That's a, isn't that a cheerful Father's Day passage? Um, that's what happens when you just preach right through a book. You don't pick your passages. They just kind of happen. So uh, here's the thing. We see a really clear switch in tone in this passage, right? Previously, I mean, James is confrontational all the way through, but most of the time he's like, hey, hey, family, Here's something you need to pay attention to. Hey, family, here's an area we need to, man, we need to dig in. And he's switching back into, from, from, from being an exhorter to being a prophet here, right? Now it's not, hey, family, it's, hey, you adulterous people, right? Hey, it's, it's, this is confrontational. Um, this is a scathing rebuke. Verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, right? This isn't like last week, there was that passage where James is like, turn your joy into sorrow, mourning, right? There's a time and a place that is appropriate and actually healthy to mourn and to sorrow. It, it, is, it is appropriate and good when we find the brokenness in us or the brokenness in the world to enter into the mourning of that. It's healthy for us. It helps us enter into grace. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying mourn and howl because you're going for destruction. This is despair. This isn't, this isn't the mourning that leads to grace. This is the mourning of despair, right? This is, this is um, the miseries that are coming upon you because you're rich. And most people in here are like, sweet, I dodged that bullet because I'm not rich, right? Most of us don't feel rich, let's be honest. Most of us do not think of ourselves as, as being rich. And here's the funny thing with riches, it's comparative, right? You only feel rich when you compare yourself to somebody who has less than you. And generally, that's not where we're looking. We don't pay attention to people who have less than us. We pay attention to people who have more than us. And as a result, we don't feel rich. Well, I'm not rich, right? I'm not like them. I don't have that. I, I can't do that. I, I, I can't, I can go on vacation, but I can't go on vacation like that, or I can't even go on vacation, right? I, you know what I'm saying? Like, we just look at this, and it's comparative, and so it's ironic. I read an interview with somebody who's a genuine one percenter. Um, I read this interview last year, so we're talking somebody who's a multi-multi-millionaire, right? A genuine one percenter, and their basic thing in the whole interview was, I'm just, we're just normal people like you, right? We eat dinner together. I go to work. We go on vacation. Yeah, our vacations are probably a little bit nicer than yours, but we're not like our neighbor, right? Our neighbor has a private jet. We don't have a private jet, right? We fly on a plane, like, you know, with other people, the common folk. We're normal, right? So here's the thing. When wealth is comparative, you never feel rich. You never feel rich because someone always has more than you. And as a result, um, we don't think of ourselves this way. Here's the thing, you guys, I was reading this in Forbes. The average American today, the average American, and, and most of us are honestly above average economically, average American today is 90 times richer than the average historical human being. Like 90 times richer than the than the uh, average historical human being. So this week, um, I had a rough week. I had uh, Thursday, uh, my AC went out. And Thursday was kind of a brutal day, man. It was hot. 
And, uh, and I noticed, because it was like getting, you know, a little, like, it feels a little warm in here, right? So I go check thermostat and moving into the upper 70s. And, and I'm like, man, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't good. And I go out, therm- you know, I do a little, ther- so I call. And, uh, and I'm just sweating my brains out and I'm complaining. And, and I'm, I'm like, man, this is, I'm going to die. This is horrible. I'm going to die, right? I'm complaining about it as I'm, as I'm getting fresh water from a, a thing that actually delivers it straight to my house, Drinkable water, it's crazy. And I'm drinking this fresh water that I didn't go to a river to collect and I didn't have to purify. And, and, and I'm drinking this water next to my refrigerator where I have fresh food stored. And I'm dying, I'm like dying because my, isn't it funny how quickly our luxuries become necessities? Isn't it, isn't it funny, you know? And, and so they fixed my AC and, and, uh, and then yesterday we're sitting around and it starts feeling warm again. So they fixed it Friday and last night. I'm like, are you kidding me? It goes out again. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta write a sermon, God. How am I supposed to write a sermon? And I'm hot. I'm like sweating. I can't concentrate. Like, this is like not good. And um, here's the irony is, is when a luxury becomes a necessity, we completely lose sight of how rich we are. Through most of human history, AC was not a thing. I don't know if you know that. Indoor plumbing? Mm -mm. Still, most of the world, right? I can go to the bathroom in my house. It's amazing, right? And it doesn't, it's not bad. It doesn't stink. I mean, here's most of the world, what I'm inside, I've got double insulated windows. It's like 99 degrees outside. I'm complaining because it's like 83 in my house, right? Most of the world, today doesn't enjoy the level of luxury that I completely take for granted. And if you go back in history, the places that they considered incredibly luxurious were nothing compared to what we consider average today. Wealth is comparative. We all feel poor. You know why? Because we have a worldly mindset toward money. That's what James is calling out, a worldly mindset toward money. Now, again, I'm going to define worldliness, and some of you are going to get really sick of me doing this. You're like, dude, every single week you define worldliness. I know, I know. I was told that, that when I get sick of saying something, you're just starting to hear it, and I'm sick of saying it, so I think you're starting to hear it. But, but worldliness, average American Christianity defines worldliness as a problem out there, right? They think of worldliness as strip clubs and bars and bad entertainment and, and corrupting influences out there, and you need to stay away from worldliness. And what they mean by that is you stay away from all the bad stuff out there. But biblically, worldliness isn't the bad stuff out there. It's the bad stuff in here. It is, it is the inclination of my heart to do life apart from God. Worldliness is my desire to get the blessings of God apart from relationship with God. It is to be independent from God, to try to get the shalom, the fullness, the flourishing of life apart from the God who gives it. I want to live life on my terms, in my way, in my time. I want to mark the boundaries of my own glory, establish my own security. I want to fight for my own pleasures. I want to do it. And it is that inclination to do life apart from God that is the heart of worldliness. It is the systems we create to try to do life apart from the God who created life. We have a worldly mindset toward money. We have a worldly mindset toward money. So people debate whether James 5 is written to believers or unbelievers, right? Because it actually sounds like he's writing to unbelievers here. He's really harsh and he's actually saying, man, you're you're going to be judged by God. And it's like, well, it wouldn't be true. A believer would it? I don't think, I think that kind of misses the point. He's not, he's not here trying to rebuke an unbeliever or a believer. He is rebuking a mindset that honestly is the default mindset most of us approach money with. It is a mindset that we can be followers of Christ and in our worldliness and our double-mindedness try to live by, right? And so what I think we have here is, is a text that, that calls us out and invites us to see how we are worldly in our mindset, because there are a few things that stir up our worldliness like money. There are a few things that give us the illusion of godlike power than money. You want to be secure. 
You're, you have anxiety. You like to control the loose ends of life. What do you want? You probably want money in the, the bank account, right? Because that, that gives me the illusion of being able to control the loose ends of my life. You want to be significant. What do you want? You probably want money so that you can have the, the, uh, the things that make you feel and look significant so that people will respect you, the right car, the right suit, or the right uh, watch, or, or whatever, right? These things that people look at and they're like, oh, he's a man of wealth. He's a man of significance. We want money to make us feel important. We want influence. We want to be able to change things. We want people to listen to us. We want to have power. Few things give us that kind of access more than money, right? I, I just want comfort. I, I want to have, I want to be, I want to be able to just rest and, 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 and find genuine comfort and few things offer comfort, like the ability to buy your own vacations, your own entertainment systems, your own whatever, right? Uh, so as we listen to James's rebuke, we're invited to examine our own hearts. Am I fostering a worldly mindset toward money? <laughs> American. Um, you already know the answer, so I'm going to show you how. All right, so first sign of a worldly mindset toward money uh, is, is verses 2 and 3. More is never enough. More is never enough. Let's take a look at verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last day. All right, there are three forms of wealth mentioned here. Riches, garments, gold and silver. Okay, riches is a, a Greek word that refers generally to food. Okay, garments, you know what garments are. Um, and, and gold and silver, money, you know what that is. And what he's saying is, is all three of these forms of, of wealth you you have, right? So let me just at the outset ask, what's the purpose of wealth? What is the purpose of these things, right? Is it, is it wrong to have them? Is it wrong to have wealth? Absolutely not. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's not even wrong to be wealthy, right? Abraham was an incredibly wealthy man that God blessed and actually increased his wealth. There's, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. God gave us wealth and says, in fact, wise people will increase in wealth, right? So, so the problem isn't with the wealth itself. Wealth is, is good, right? What, what does food do? It sustains us. It enriches us, right? God not only gave us nutrition, right? He didn't fill our world with flavorless nutrition packets. He filled it with the variety and incredible uh, uh, complexity of, of this world of food. Why? Because he wants us to enjoy it, right? The wealth of food allows us that it'll both sustain us and enrich our lives, right? The wealth of garments, what, what do clothing do for us? Well, they do two fundamental things. They, they protect us and they beautify right? Historically, human cultures have seen them doing both. They, they are a way of expressing and, 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 and covering with dignity, but it's also a way to protect yourself from the heat of the sun or, or from the, the chill of winter. It is a way of, of, of providing protection from, from the elements, right? They, they play a, a, an important role to protect and beautify. Gold and silver. What's the purpose of gold and silver? To leverage resources for the flourishing of life. That's what money gets to do. That's what gold and silver get to do, to leverage resources. It allows you, it is a tool to be used to increase the flourishing of life. The flourishing of, when I have money, when I leverage this tool well, my, my family flourishes. I'm able to protect them from threats and provide them with opportunities. I'm able to give them good things. I'm able to create opportunities for them, right? I can leverage it for the good of my community. I can leverage it for human flourishing. The purpose of gold and silver is that it is a tool to be used um, to, 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 to help uh, produce the flourishing of life. Money equips an economy that generates productivity and prosperity, right? That, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to use money in a way that actually increases the human flourishing, not just of myself, but of my community, right? Of, of fostering new jobs and creating new opportunities and creating new, new things, right? These are, these are good things. So the problem, the problem here isn't owning wealth. The problem is having a worldly mindset toward wealth. The problem is when we love that wealth right? That leads you to hoarding that wealth. Um, 
I don't know if you noticed, but he says your, your, your uh, riches have rotted. When does food go bad? When you don't eat it. <laughs> you have more than you can eat. So what did you do with it? Well, I stored it. Why? Because it's mine. Well, what happened to it? It rotted <laughs> because I didn't eat it, right? And I have garments that are moth-eaten. When do garments become moth-eaten? When you're wearing them? Generally, no, right? Now, think about this. During this period of time, food was wealth, right? We, food is disposable to us today, right? We are so wealthy. We don't think of food as wealth. Food is food, right? It's just everywhere, who needs to worry about food? Well, back in the day, man, food was wealth, and so were garments. You didn't have a lot of clothes back in the day. You had to, it cost a lot of money to, to hand make clothing, especially if it was of fine fabrics and of colors that had to be dyed. Those were really expensive, and so most people only had one tunic, right? They only had a set of clothing to get them through the day. If you were really wealthy, you might have a few. This person has so much that they've become moth-eaten, right? You're like digging through. Oh, look at that tunic. I haven't seen it so long. Oh, moth got to it. I guess I'll send that to Goodwill, right? I mean, it's like, you got so much, it's being ruined. And then he goes on and he says, your gold and your silver have rusted. Well, that's weird, because gold and silver don't rust, right? That's what makes them precious metals. They don't oxidize. They don't corrode, right? So some people would say, well, that just proves James is a poor guy. He's never seen gold and silver, and he's just jealous of rich people, and so he's just dumb. I don't think so, because he goes on from saying your gold and silver have, have corroded, they've rusted, to saying that corrosion has spread to you, and it's rotting you. I think he's being metaphorical here, right? I don't think he's being literal. I, I think what he's saying is there's a way of handling money that ruins its purpose, that rots its value, and that rot doesn't just rot the value of the money, right? The, the purpose of wealth is to increase the flourishing of life. The purpose of wealth is to increase the, the good and the flourishing of myself, of my community, of, of the common human condition. It is a tool to be leveraged for a purpose. And when we don't use it for that purpose, it rots. It is of no use. The use of money is the spending of money. The use of money is the leveraging of money for the flourishing of human life. And when we refuse to use it for its purpose, it rots, but the rot doesn't just stay in the money. It spreads to our souls. It actually rots our joy. It rots our contentment. It rots our security. It rots our souls. First sign of a worldly mindset toward money, more is never enough. More is never enough. And some of you are like, Steve, awesome. I don't hoard because I don't even have enough to get through. Hmm. Hoarding's not my problem. Missed that bullet again. Not me. Uh, more is never enough. All right, here's the thing. Some of us are still paying the credit card bills for things we sold in the garage sale last year. You want to know where your money went? Look at the clutter in your house. That's your money. See, more is not enough isn't just about hoarding, it's about spending. It's not just about, okay, I'm not going to spend the money because I'm going to hoard it and keep it to myself and let it rot. It's I'm going to spend money I don't have because I need more. I'm not going to leverage the wealth I currently have. I'm going to leverage the wealth I don't have yet because more is not enough. I need, I need more luxury. I need more space. I need, now here's the thing, luxury's not bad. Space is not bad. The desire for a nicer home is not bad, right? There are utilitarian purposes. It is good to have a big home if you need a big home. It is good to have luxury. If it helps with the human flourishing, it is bad. When you look to those things to do for you what only God can do and to be for you what only God can be, when you say, it is that car 
that will scratch this itch of significance. It is, it is that bigger house that will finally make me able to rest in my own skin. It is that better vacation that will finally make, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's not just hoarding, it's overspending. They come from the same root. More is not enough. And so we look to money to do for us what only God can do, and it can't. And so we just try to get more. So James is calling out this perversion of wealth. And here's the thing, you guys. He says you're going to be held accountable for it. We don't like that. But remember, we were created in the image of God with a job description. (laughs) The job description of the human life is to image God, to, to represent God, and to act in a way that is submissive to God, representing the order and character of God to creation. And when we pervert our relationship with wealth, we misrepresent God. And we are accountable for how we have thwarted God's purpose for human flourishing as we have been focused on building our little kingdoms, establishing our own glory, and living for our own comfort. We are accountable he says this, this, this wealth will, will, it has a voice. It will be evidence against you. You have laid up, in fact, this is the last sentence, you have laid up treasure for yourself in the last days. <laughs> right? And we're like, yes, I have finally laid up enough treasure. It is well with my soul. I have laid up enough treasure. I don't have to be insecure. I have laid up enough treasure. I am significant. I have laid up enough treasure. I can have all the comfort I want. And, and he's being ironic. He's like, yeah, you've, you've laid up treasure, all right? A treasure of judgment. Because in your determination to use your wealth to supplant me, you've not only blasphemed me, you have defrauded others, right? And that leads to the next point. More is not enough, so profit is more important than people, right? Verse verse 4. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So your treasure, that hoarded treasure, whether it is hoarded in the sense that I'm going to keep it to establish myself or spend it in a way that is all about self-indulgence and self-focus, your treasure will witness against you. And so so will the people you've defrauded to get it. Because you are more concerned with your margin of profit than you were with the flourishing of people. You are more concerned with the glory of your personal kingdom than with the glory of God's kingdom. You are more concerned with your personal uh, uh, um, glory, comfort, security than you were with the human flourishing with which you have been, uh, the influence with which you've been entrusted. You have withheld their wage by fraud. Now, he's talking specifically, he says, the person who mowed your field or the person who harvested your crops, you've withheld their, their wage by fraud. And so, uh, you know, we talk, give us our day, our daily bread, and, and, and this idea of living day to day. And some of us are like, man, I just live day to day, week to week, I just don't have a lot of money. And the reality is most of us have no concept of what it means to live day to day. You're not in danger of starving today or tomorrow. You're not in danger of being exposed and... and we have no idea. But for most of human history, and in fact, in current human history, a lot of people are living day to day. And what he's saying is that there are people who work for you, and you decide to withhold their wage at the end of the day. That's the money they're going to use to actually provide for their family the following day. That actually gives them food to eat. That actually gives them shelter over their heads. That actually gives them the the things they need to survive. You withhold it because for whatever reason, it makes better business sense to you. You're like, you know, I'll pay you later. I'll pay you tomorrow, I'll pay you at the end of the week, and, and, and what you're doing is leveraging, right? It's like, I need this money to invest in this opportunity, I'll pay you later, because this is going to help me, and, and it's good business. It's good business to leverage what you have, and at times what that means is, is you know, good business isn't always uh, make for kind people, Right? And, uh, and he says, you know what? You are defrauding them. And you may be praised for being a canny businessman, for, for being somebody who's really good with money. You, 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 you may get the praise of men. And, and these poor people that you're exploiting, they really can't do anything about it. You know why? Because they have no voice. 
right? Poor people are easy to exploit. All you got to do is lawyer up, right? You look at businessmen, rich businessmen, they've got teams of lawyers. You know why? Because it's expensive, and poor people can't do it. They can't hire lawyers. They can't, they can, they're easily exploited because you can actually use the legal avenues of the courts to actually silence those that you're, you remove their voice and you, 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 you remove their ability to protect themselves. People, poor people, are continually exploited for profit because it's easy and they have no voice. They have no voice in our society, but they have a voice with God. James says, God hears their complaint. You are more concerned with profit than you are with people. And the Lord of hosts is listening. So you have the witness of your hoarded wealth. You have the witness of those that you've defrauded. And all of this is flowing out of a worldview where you're just living as if what is, is all there is. It's a very short-sighted way of living. Take a look at verse 5. Verse 5, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. That's a really graphic image. image, The image here is of 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 an animal blissfully, indulgently feeding on the riches of the field right in front of him. And all he's doing is, is, oh, that looks better, and that looks better, and that looks better. And he's just moving forward in, in, in this self-indulgence, completely unaware that he's actually walking into the hands of the one who will slaughter him. Stumbling forward, fat and sleepy, completely unaware that he's fattening himself up for the slaughter. Our self-focused, self-promoting, self-protecting greed is bloating our souls. It is inebriating our senses. It is blinding us to the reality of where we are and where we're going. It makes us completely short-sighted. We're just focused on what's the next thing I want. I don't even pay attention to what I have anymore. Just what's the next thing I want? What's the next thing I want? What's the next luxury I want to feast on? What's the next, the next glory I want to claim? What is the next? All we see is the opportunity for more in front of us because more is never enough. Completely unaware that we are, with every step, bringing ourselves closer to the slaughter. Because we forget that what is isn't all there is. That this is not the end of the story and that we will be held accountable for what we do and how we live. This life, this life's the preface. When you're reading a novel, the preface, that part you skip, the short part, you just want to get to the story. This, this is the preface. This isn't it, man. This isn't all there is by, any, by a long shot. And to live as if this is all there was, man, how foolish is that? How incredibly foolish is that. We live for luxury and protection, for comfort, for power, and all we're focused on is the here and now. And if if that's where our focus is, we're going to exploit people to do it and not even care and not even notice. We're, We're going to not only exploit people personally, we're going to completely ignore it when the systems we create exploit them for our good. Because there are systems that exploit the poor. There are corporations that are continually exploiting and hurting others. And as long as I get my product for a cheap price, I don't care. As long as I get what I want in a way that that leverages me the least, I don't even pay attention to the price other people pay. Live for the here and now. All that fills my vision is, is my belly full? Am I entertained? Do I, have the, do I have all the comforts that I think I really want? This is far from all there is. That short-range vision binds us to a foolishness when we should be living with a long-range wisdom. See, when we're living for just what's in front of us, we become completely blind 
to the wisdom of having a long-range vision, living for what will be instead of what is, living for what is truly valuable instead of what is temporal value, living, living in a way that actually leads to a greater glory and a greater kingdom and a greater blessing than trying to compete with God in an insane way in this world, in this way, trying to be God. We live as if this is all there were. And in that process, we mistake short-term prosperity for long-term blessing. Verse 6. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Now, most rich people are going, like, what are you, I haven't murdered anybody. Look at you exaggerating again. <laughs> always, always exaggerating to make your point. But have you? See, when you defraud somebody of their, of their daily earnings, that produces human suffering instead of human flourishing. When you buy into a system that is built on the fact that people are defrauded what is their due, you're, you're increasing human suffering and, in fact, loss of life. And what James is saying is that you're guilty of murder. You didn't do it with your own hands, but you are helping build a system that is actually where you're reaping the benefits at the cost of the lives of others. You murder. You murder. Hey, you ever do something and think, oh man, God's going to strike me dead for that one. Anybody? Just me? Like, like, you ever done something where you're like, man, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway? I hope the, God's going to strike me with lightning. And, and then he doesn't, because you're still here. And, and you know what you think next? Huh. I got away with it. Well, I should try it again. And, and again. And, and here's the thing. And when we go back and try it, we, we always go a little bit further than we, the time before. Let's take a little bit more, do a little bit more, exploit a little bit more. We just keep going back to the well because the first time, man, it was intoxicating. Now the well tends to give diminishing returns. Every time you go back, it's actually worse than the time you went before. Less joy, less freedom, less, but greater slavery. All right, here's the thing, you guys. Um, when God doesn't judge us, we start telling this story. Well, God's a God of grace. Obviously, God's a God of grace. He didn't judge me, so he must love me. He gave me a mulligan. Isn't that nice? He just let me off, right? And he'll keep letting me off. You know why? Because God gets me. He, he just understands, man. I got these weaknesses. I've got this disorder. I've got this. And God's just cool with it. Um, and maybe even God approves of it. And so we get bolder and bolder in our sin. And here's the thing, we tend to mistake short-term success as a sign of God's long-term blessing. When in reality, it could very well be a sign of God's judgment. The most terrifying judgment I read about in Scripture is very, very quiet. It's when God gives us over. You're like, well, that doesn't sound so bad. There's a lot worse judgment like that in Scripture. Well, there's a lot more overt judgment, right? If God rains down fire, that's a bad day. That's a bad day. But this is terrifying. Because what happens when God gives us over is that he stops intervening in grace. It's like, I want what I want. I want my worldly view of life. I want to do life apart from God. I want this money so I can have security. I want this money so that I can have pleasure. I want this money. And God is graciously calling us to repentance, calling us back to dependence, calling us back to humility, and we resist, and we resist, and we resist, and sometimes God gives us over. He gives us what we're asking for. And we're like, well, that doesn't sound so bad, except for the fact that's like giving a drug addict unlimited supplies of drugs. You will drunkenly walk into your own self-destruction. You will be like Gollum, throwing yourself into the fires of Mordor, trying to save your ring of power, however you define it, whatever it is for you. You will destroy yourself. When God gives us over, that is not a good day. Now, it feels like a good day. 
because it kind of feels like we're Midas for a little while. Like, holy cow, look, I just turned that plate into gold. Holy cow, I just turned that apple into gold. Holy cow, I just got what I want. My business is thriving. People are respecting me. I'm able to buy the car I've always wanted. I'm able to go on this vacation. I, I have respect. I have, I have all these things. Until the day you turn your daughter into gold. Until the day you realize that the cost of your short-term success was everything you truly value. That in order to compete with God, you end up building a kingdom in your own image and that kingdom is filled with ruin and misery and howling and gnashing of teeth. These people, he says, murdered the righteous, condemned and murdered the righteous person. And there was no consequence. So they took that as, yeah, all right, God's with me. God blesses me. This is God's, God has prospered me. When in reality, it's actually God's judgment. Now he ends on this interesting note. He says here at the end, he does not resist you. Talking about the, uh, the righteous person. You condemn and you murder the righteous person. He does not resist you. You exploit the poor. And you have the ability to do it. He has no voice. All right, so I want to make a point. Not all rich people. He's, James is not condemning riches. He's condemning the love of riches. And he's not saying all poor people are righteous. Right? That's one of the mistakes that we can make is this idea that rich people are evil and poor people are good. There are some really wicked poor people. Poor people that are just as enslaved to this way of thinking as any rich person. More is never enough. They exploit people. They hurt people. They're gaining. They're, trying, they're leveraging their, their money not for human flourishing but for personal self-indulgence, right? So being poor doesn't make you righteous. But there are many who are poor who are righteous. And there is a myth in our culture that there is something inherently wrong with people who are poor is one of the lies that our culture tells. We shame people for their poverty because if they would just care enough, they could pick themselves up by their bootstraps and get ahead just like I did. They could climb out of that poverty. If they live in that neighborhood, it must be because they want to live in that neighborhood. If they're trapped in that systemic poverty, it must be because they want to stay in that poverty because there's something broken about them, evil about them. They're lazy or they're uneducated and they, won't, they just won't help themselves because in America... If you don't want to be poor, you don't have to be. And what we completely ignore in that analysis is the fact that, yeah, maybe you did work yourself up, but you know what? You never notice the tailwinds that help you along. And as a result, you assume everybody else has the same advantages and privileges you had. And there are honest, hardworking, diligent people in poverty that are absolutely working, in many cases, harder than you ever have. And they cannot break out because the headwinds are so strong, they enslave them and their families generationally into systems of poverty. There are righteous poor. And the end result, he says, is this, your mad devotion to money and profit comes at the cost of these righteous poor. You're robbing your systems, your behavior. You're robbing the righteous of life instead of leveraging your wealth for the flourishing of humans, uh, for the human condition, using this tool as it's meant to be used. You are, you are neglecting the tool and using it completely for self-promoting, self-focused, um, self-satisfying. You are, you are killing them. And they do not resist. Why? Well, partly because they can't. What are they going to do? Take you to court? What are they going to do? Call their politicians and, and get the politicians to lobby on their behalf? That's not the way our system works. People in poverty have no power. They have no voice. 
right? But I want you to notice something. He doesn't say they, they can't resist you. It says they don't. Which James implies means it's a choice. The righteous poor are, according to James, as they suffer under the hand of the rich, under the exploitative behavior um, of the rich, are acting like Christ. They're choosing to walk in humble dependence on God, who is the giver of true riches, rather than fight in the system of man, lowering themselves to be like the people who are exploiting them. It is a powerful note. There is a dignity and there is a power that James is giving to the poor, even though they are completely exploited and ignored and discounted by the rich. Suffering loss and humbly trusting God, knowing that this world is not all there is, is true power and dignity. James, in this one passage, is both rebuking the rich for their exploitation and encouraging the poor in their suffering. He's saying, rich, you are loud and boisterous in your celebration of self, in the glory of your success, and you don't even notice the quiet passing of the righteous ones that you have ignored and defrauded. But God notices God hears because in his ears their quiet passing is worthy of more honor than all of your pageantry. So how'd you do with the test? All right, the signs of having a worldly mindset toward money, toward wealth. More is never enough. Profit is more important than people. We live as if what is is all there is. And we tend to mistake short-term success for long-term blessing. I don't know about you, but I don't do so well with this. Because I'm an American. And everything in our culture tells me that the path to genuine success is the path of money. And that message is reinforced over and over in thousands of overt and subtle ways. I struggle with this. Now, if you're anything like me, you're feeling the sting of James's rebuke. So I want to end you with this. What do we do with it? James doesn't give us a solution. He's a prophet. His, his thing here is to rip off the bandage and open the wound. What are we supposed to do with it? Well, I could give you some good advice, right? So here's some good advice. Do the opposite of these things, right? That's good advice. Stop wanting more. Look back and be thankful for the blessings instead of looking forward and, and just filling your mind with, with longing and desires for things you don't have. Look around and remind yourself of how incredibly wealthy you are instead of focusing on all the things that you don't have. Foster an attitude of gratitude instead of an attitude of, of lust and of discontent, right? That's good advice. Don't put profit above people. As you have the ability, shop responsibly. Use your money in ways that help other people, humans flourish instead of exploiting their suffering for your temporary gain, right? Don't, don't adopt business practices that defraud people of their rights or use people in ways that, that don't help them flourish. Recognize that these are tools to be used for yours and other people flourishing, and it's not just about building your kingdom. That's good advice. Remember that this is not all there is, that, that there is a kingdom coming that is of greater glory and of greater purpose than the one that, that is. That is that is good advice. And don't mistake your short-term success for long-term blessing. Don't, don't measure whether or not you're doing well by whether or not you're making a profit. Just because people praise you for being a good businessman does not mean you're doing well. God uses a completely different measuring stick. Good advice, right? But here's the thing. I think we need more than good advice. Because the reality is, is if we try to take all that advice and put it into practice, we're still going to fail. We can take all that and, and, and in the end, 
um, our hearts are going to betray us because our hearts are fundamentally worldly, which means we need to attack this issue at a much deeper level than the behaviors. We need to go to what drives the behaviors. Now, remember, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You either love God or you will love money. Notice that those two things go hand in hand, serving and loving. That's worship. See, we have a worship problem, not a money problem. We have a worship problem, not a greed problem. We have a worship problem, not an exploitation problem, which means we need to go to the worship issue if we want to in any way address the other issues. The problem we have is an issue of misplaced love and worship, so the solution has to start there. See, money flatters the lie that I can be like God. It fans the flames of my greed and my lust and my self-glory. And what I need to do is instead of putting my faith in the gospel of greed, I need more. I need to become bold in the gospel of grace. I'm loved. I have it all. My greatest blessing has already been given. My greatest problem has already been solved. If I can thoroughly believe how much I am loved by Christ, it will meet my deepest heart issues, right? I, I need to believe the gospel of grace instead of the gospel of greed. So let me, we all struggle with money, but we all probably struggle with it in different ways for different reasons. And so I want to help illuminate the basic loves of our heart, the basic needs of our heart, the places we're going to try to serve a false god, an idol of money, instead of serve the true God, the one who can actually meet these needs. So there are four basic heart idols that I'm going to wrap up with, and I'm just going to ask you to do a little self-examination, right? Let's put those on the screen. Four fundamental heart idols. There are four basic human needs, a, a need for, for power, a need for control, a need for approval, and a need for comfort. These are all areas we are tempted to worldliness, to try to establish for ourselves what only comes from God, Right? So with power, if I'm, if I'm driven by a need for power, I'm driven by a need to have influence and have respect. I need to be respected to feel good about myself, right? My worst fear is that I'm going to be made to look like a fool. My worst fear is that I'm going to be made to have open shame. I, I need respect, right? So money is my way of leveraging tools to gain what only God can give. Because here's the thing, if God puts his approval on me, who can remove that? If God calls me his son, his man, his servant, his ambassador, and somebody comes along and says, I don't like the, uh, your suit's outdated. Oh, look at your cheap shoes. Oh, you're still driving a car with a bumper falling off? Yeah. Right? If they disrespect me, what does that matter if God approves of me, right? So, so respect, do I, do I use money to, to leverage power? Do I use money to leverage control? If I am driven by a need of control, I use my money as a way to try to build security and create safety. I cannot control all the loose ends of my life, and so what I try to do is create enough uh, comfort, security, have enough in the savings, have enough padding around me in my car, have enough borders around me in my neighborhood that I am not at risk. And it is my way of giving myself the illusion that somehow I can actually protect myself in an incredibly dangerous world. Instead, I need to go to the gospel of grace and recognize that it is God who's in control of all things, not me. And that if I'm walking humbly behind him, trusting him, he's the one that controls the loose ends of my life. Nothing comes into my life that he doesn't allow and, and nothing can harm me that he doesn't have a per greater purpose to sanctify me and glorify himself. And that ultimately, I'm not going to get out of this thing alive. I don't know if you've realized that yet. The goal of life is not to arrive safely at death. It is to live life in a humble and courageous faith. And when we do that, God's in control. Yeah, I'm going to die. And so are you. But I'm going to die cowering behind my idols, trying to pretend as if I'm immortal, or am I going to die in the boldness of faith? following a God who is going to redeem and restore. He will redeem all of my suffering and restore all of his glory. Approval. Sometimes we use money because we desperately, desperately need to be loved. And we don't feel like we're lovable. 
and we don't feel like, like our shame can be removed. And so we use money to cover our shame and to promote a false image. We want to buy people's love. We want to gain their approval. And that can be through clothing and spending, or it can be through giving, or it can be through, there's a myriad ways that we can use money toward this end instead of resting in the fact that we have the actual approval of God, the only one that actually matters. Resting in the fact that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, looks at us and says, I love you. I see you in all of your ruin, and I will restore your glory because I love you. Your shame doesn't put me off. I took your shame and took it off of you that I might cover you with my dignity. Your need for significance, your, your need to be valued is met infinitely in Christ, more infinitely than money could ever buy. Comfort. Some of you are using money to try to, to build this life of comfort. I just, I just need a place to escape. I just need a way to get away. Calgon, Bahamas, private jet, minivan. It's really like, dude, I would totally settle for a minivan, right? Give me a little more space between me and the kids, right? I get it, right? I get it. But here's the thing. Can you actually buy rest? No. You, we've all been on vacations where we got to escape and we came back more exhausted than when we left. We, we've all got that thing that we thought finally would make us, oh, that'll just, and you get it, and you're like, okay, well, that didn't work, what's next, right? No, what about the gospel? The gospel calls us in to actually be comforted by the presence of God. God is the creator of all good things. I don't know if you've noticed that. There's nothing good that he didn't create, which means he has a purpose for it in your life. He is not a cosmic killjoy trying to keep you from pleasure. He's the one who designed everything and is trying to lead you into the genuine enjoyment of it. It is your misuse of it that destroys it. In his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what the psalmist says. God created good things for us to enjoy. And when we enjoy them as a gift from God and humble dependence on God, guess what they do? They actually give us refreshment to our soul. They actually give us genuine rest. They don't just distract us. They renew us. You guys, grace is better than greed. It's a better gospel. It is a better power. It actually meets you in your place of need. It frees you instead of enslaves you. And we need to recognize that the biggest barrier I have in my life to walking in the power of grace is my pride. I hate humility. I hate humble dependence. I hate the feeling of vulnerability that it forces me to have. I hate the, the powerlessness that it forces me to embrace, to admit that I'm not God and to trust him to be God. My pride is the greatest barrier I have. Humility is my greatest friend. You guys, there's, let the prophet James open our eyes Greed is a world of diminishing returns. You get it, it feels great, and it feels less great the more you get it. The more you have, the more you need. The more disillusioned you become, the more desperate you become. You get more stuff, and it shrinks the borders of your own joy. You know, grace is so much better because instead of being a world of diminishing returns, it's a world of increasing blessing. Because you can't outgive God. And God is absolutely dependable. Like a small child walking in the shadow of his father. A good father who makes a way, who protects him and provides for him and loves him. Our father walks alongside of us. And even though we are horribly afraid of our dependence on him, he rejoices in that dependence because it allows us to actually trust him and follow him and thrive in his presence. Yeah, but Steve, what if I end up like the poor guy in, in this passage who gets abused? What if I end up like that person, exposed and abused and rejected and shamed and people I love? Are, what, what if I don't have what I need to protect myself? What if I end up having to suffer like Christ suffered? That's a very real possibility. God does not promise us 
worldly prosperity. In fact, he says, in this world you will suffer. Because this is the prelude, not the full story. There is full blessing coming. This isn't the world we're going to get it in. We get a taste of it. There may be suffering. But here's the point. You're either going to trust yourself to protect yourself, or you're going to trust God. I, for one, would rather die with a living Christ than live with dying fools. I would rather cast my lot with a Savior who's already died and rose again and has promised to take me with him than to throw my lot in with a bunch of rich people who are fat and heading towards slaughter and just pretending like it's not real. We need to sober up. We need to sober up. You guys, I'm going to leave these up for reflection. Um, allow God, I don't know, to encourage you, to rebuke you, challenge you, whatever. Let the Spirit speak to you. But let's be a people who run to grace. Let me close this in a word of prayer, and uh, we'll share communion in a moment. Father, we thank you that uh, you are the source of true riches, that you are the one of real blessing, that uh, We look to such silly things to do for us what only you can do, to be for us what only you can be. We look to our money. We look to our jobs. We look to our success. We look to people's opinion of us. How foolish. Or will you wake us up to see soberly, to see clearly and give us the great and true riches, like the real rich. Like, like, Lord, will you help us to be content? Man, the richest people in the world are the people who are content. <laughs> Not driven by a lust and a need for more. The, 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 the truest joyful people are the ones who leverage everything they have for the flourishing of good instead of trying to hoard it in a way of protecting themselves to become what they can't be. Lord, we do these things. We admit these things. We want to repent of these things. Will you, Spirit, will you help us? Will you help us to move into this life, to move into this freedom, to, to lay down our idols, to tear them down, and to walk boldly in faith? trusting you because you are trustworthy, loving you because you love us. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.